Um, so we're in part three of a series that we're doing on the subject of attitude from the book of Philippians in the New Testament in the Bible. Just out of curiosity, how many of you bring your Bible to church? Maybe on your phone or paper or copy or whatever. All right, so it, it, it's a good idea to do that somehow, some way. You can do it electronically. You can get a free Bible uh, on the Internet from just about anywhere. The best one that I've ever seen is called YouVersion, Y-O-U version. Just Google it, and you can download the Bible in just about any language. Uh, or bring a paper Bible. I always put verses on the screen, uh, but I'm assuming that you're following. And, you know, that may not always be a valid assumption. So bring your Bibles in, and I, I try and go as slow as I can uh, so that people can follow. We're in the New Testament. We're in the book of Philippians, and this is the third week. We talked the first week about the whole background of, you know, who's writing this letter. And we discovered that it's Paul, uh, the apostle, who's writing from a Roman prison. And he's writing this letter to his friends in Philippi, this church, which he helped uh, to plant. And the, the letter has a lot of things in it about the subject of attitude. And just the very fact that he wrote it from prison uh, is an amazing uh, testimony about his own attitude. And uh, last week we talked about chapter 2 which really centers on the idea of humility. And we talked about how unity in the church is not uniformity and things like rivalry and self-glory. These are in opposition to God, uh, but God wants us to be humble in our attitude. And he gives several examples there in the letter in Philippians chapter 2. Again, you can listen to it online uh, and catch up. And today we're going to do a little chunk, a little passage from Philippians chapter 3. And this is in verses 10 uh, to 14 specifically. So I've, I'd, a, I'd ask uh, Paul Patterson if he would come. And I think yeah, you can use this mic right behind me. If he would go ahead and read that passage out loud. Again it's from Philippians 3 uh, verses 10 to 14. Oh we need some sound yeah. Okay. There we go. Okay. I still bring the paper version of the Bible, so I have to find it here. <laughs> uh, Philippians 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me, heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Paul. You remind me some, of something. I have a, a, recurring, uh, a recurring nightmare um, where where I get up in front of people to speak using a, a paper Bible, as Paul said, and I'm looking for the passage, and I can't find the passage. And the time just keeps passing and passing, and I get more and more anxious and more and more nervous, and it's just this recurring nightmare. You reminded me of it, Paul, with your paper Bible. Thank you for, for reading the, uh, that passage this morning. Uh, the idea here, 
is a is a very strange one that Paul is is putting uh, in front of us here in chapter three, um, and I'm just centering on on these four or five uh, verses here because he speaks about a goal, and uh, when we think about Christianity. And when we think about what the goal is, I mean, those of you who who are followers of of Jesus, and most of you, many of you in this room are, why are you doing that? What what are you in it for? What's the goal of of being a Christian? This is a very important thing that we need to be thinking about. And Paul uh, clearly is thinking about this as he as he writes. Um, but what he's writing and what he's saying runs a little bit counter to what we may think much of the time. Um, what is the goal of being a follower of Jesus? And he starts really by putting out the idea that the, the, the disciple, uh, which means a, a learner, uh, a student, uh, a follower, a disciple is not a convert, okay? A disciple is someone who's learning from someone, learning from something. The the disciple, the Christ follower, must be clear on what that goal is. They have to clarify what the real goal is. And what Paul says here is rather unusual. Verses 10 to 11, he says, I want to know Christ. Doesn't he know Christ already? I mean, it's the Apostle Paul. If anyone knew Christ, it would be him. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. How can this man who, who would certainly know Christ say that he wants to know Christ and this really is his goal. What is he, what is he trying to say there? Um, uh, sometimes people who, who are Christian people, they say, well, you know, uh, just to become a Christian and to, to get saved, that's the goal. And then people say, well, no, I've been baptized in water. Aha, I've reached the goal. No, no, no. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in other tongues. For those of you who know Pentecostal, uh, you know, we'll get into that in the coming months. Uh, that I've reached the goal. No, no, no. I'm involved in ministry in my local church. I don't just come to church. I participate in church. No, I participate in a new church, this crazy church that meets in a movie theater on Saturday morning. Oh, that's, I've reached the goal. No, no, no. I give money to the church every time that I come. I've reached, I've really reached the goal. Is that the goal that Paul as in mind, no, he says, I want to know Christ. But it's not just a surface knowledge that he's talking about. Um, everybody in this room knows somebody. There, there's no hermits here. Uh, you wouldn't be here if you didn't know somebody. You know the people who are in the room. But he's not talking about just a surface knowledge of somebody. He's talking about knowing somebody so much that he wants to be like that person. 
And you may be able to think of people in your own experience that you knew or know, and you you respect that person so much, and that person has so much influence to you that you want to become like that person. Well, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I want to have a commonality, a fellowship, a sharing of Christ himself. And he talks about sharing in his, what? In his sufferings. I want to know the commonality of his sufferings and somehow the commonality of his very being raised from the dead. This is how much I want to know Christ. This is the goal that the apostle Paul had. It was beyond anything, uh, you know, churchy and anything religious and all of these kinds of goals that we may kind of put in our minds and, and, and build up in our minds. No, he's saying, I want to know this Christ. I want to participate somehow in his life in such a deep way. And this is the ultimate goal of his faith. And that's got to be clear in the mind of the person who wants to follow Christ. What are you after? What is your goal? Because I promise you, if your goal is, well, I want my life to get better. I want my life to be easier somehow. I want it to be a little bit more comfortable somehow. Or, you know, I want to get married. So I'll pray to Jesus, and if, if Jesus brings me a spouse, then I'll serve him. You know, if Jesus gets me out of this problem, I'm in this huge problem. So God, if you're there, get me out of this problem and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. You know how long that's going to last? Until the next problem comes. And then you'll say, well, God, get me out of this problem and I'll continue to serve you. And then when he doesn't, what happens? So Paul is saying, it's beyond all of that for me. I want to know this Christ. I want to know this Jesus. So much so that I'm participating, fellowshipping, having community somehow with him to the deepest point. His, his suffering and his very resurrection from the dead. So following Jesus then is about growing, not about attaining. So he says in verses 12 to 13, uh, which, which uh, Paul had read before, not that I have already obtained all of this, so I haven't got it yet, or that I've already been made perfect, I haven't got it yet, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What a powerful verse that is. You know, some people say, well, I discovered Jesus. No, Jesus discovered you. I mean, he took hold of you. It wasn't just you decided to wake up in the morning and serve God. He had a plan to get your attention. He had a plan so that you would turn and surrender your life to him. But it's about growing and not attaining. You're not going to sit back and say, well, now I've got it. Now I've found it. Now I can relax. No, it's about growing. And even the Apostle Paul, he says, I do not have it yet. I have not obtained it. I have not uh, been made perfect, but I'm pressing on uh, to take hold of something that God has got a hold of my life, and I'm going to take hold of him. This is what he's trying to say. If there's one thing that you learn from this message, 
one thing and you forget the rest. It's that you've got to be moving. You've got to be stretching. You've got to be challenged. You've got to be uh, uh, uncomfortable. There's got to be something that's happening in your life that's causing attention that pushes you to want to know Jesus more. If you're stagnant, if your life is in stasis, if it's dry, if you're just comfortable all the time, you're not growing. You've got to be pushed, challenged, transformed, squeezed, whatever analogy you want to use, and that's going to make you grow. And you're never going to attain it in this life. It's a process that you're working on while you live here on planet Earth. It's about growing and not attaining. The moment that you think you've arrived, you say, now I've got it all figured out. I've got this Christianity thing all figured out. And you know, me and God, we're just like this and everything is hunky-dory. The moment you feel that way is the moment that you're in trouble. There always has to be this healthy tension that pulls you to, to Jesus and to a greater dependency on him. And this is how you're going to grow. There's an old, an old saying that people use in, in athletics, and it's true sometimes. They say, no pain, no gain. And that's true sometimes. Sometimes, you, you know, if, if, if it doesn't hurt in the morning in a healthy way, uh, the muscle's not growing. It's not doing anything. It, it's just sitting there. And sometimes we need that challenge and that push if we're going to grow. And this is the kind of language that Paul is using. So I want to give you from his, his uh, little verses there uh, three barriers to this growth process, to growing in Christ. Uh, number one, too much comfort. Too much comfort. So he says, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Ugh, we don't like that word. <laughs> we want to share in the nature of Christ. We want to be delivered. You know, I say, God, deliver us from our deliverance. All we're looking for is to be delivered all the time. And sometimes, you know, the fellowship of his sufferings, I, I, I press on to take hold. I forget what is behind and I strain toward what is, uh, is ahead. This is not the language of comfort that he's using here. And this may be the greatest barrier in, in terms of Western-minded Christianity. The greatest barrier may well be too much comfort. We are so unbelievably comfortable in the way that we've defined Christianity in the Western world. It's, it's almost frightening because then when we see how the rest of the world operates in constant dependency, in constant discomfort, we're shocked by it. That's why I say, may God deliver us from deliverance because so much comfort we want all the time. I'm going to give you examples uh, from the Old Testament for each of these barriers, okay? The first one is, is Abram, or Abraham as you know him. And this is a man who left his comfort zone when God called him. He was in a very comfortable setting. So Genesis uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, the Lord said to Avram, or Abram, leave your country, leave Leave your people and leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great 
nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. 75, I mean, even in that time, that's a long time. And he's a very, very wealthy, very comfortable individual at that time. If you read it back in Genesis, you see, wow, he, he took his wife, Sarai. He took his nephew, Lot. And all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. He had wealth. He had comfort. He had prestige. He had it all. And yet he chooses to obey God and go to a place that he's a stranger to. He decides to leave his comfort zone. In Hebrews chapter 11, which gives a kind of an, an, an outline of many of the great people of the Old Testament and their faith, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham, when called to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Why did he do that? Why did he decide to obey God and leave and get out of his comfort zone? You say, well, that's got nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, that just has to do with him following God. Well, not so fast. Uh, Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So Abraham, yes, he's obeying God. Yes, he's leaving his comfort zone. But it's because there's something coming that he sees a glimpse of. He sees a shadow of. He doesn't know what it is. But that promise, all nations will be blessed through you, is the promise of salvation for the non-Jewish world. Every single one of you in this room is not of the blood of Abraham. You are not Jewish, I can assure you. I'm the only oddball here, okay? I come from the Hebrew bloodline. And because of that promise in Genesis chapter 12, every single one of you who calls on the name of Jesus, that verse is fulfilled because of Christ and the gospel. And because of that man's obedience, Abraham, to go. In obedience to God, he said, I'm leaving my comfort zone. Something is coming. I don't know what it is. I don't know who he is, but something is coming, and I need to obey God. Well, the writer of Galatians, Paul, says it's the gospel message that he's responding to there. God promises the gospel to all nations in advance through the obedience of Abraham he leaves his comfort zone I can remember many times over the last now 27 years uh, that I've been a follower of Jesus that I had to leave my comfort zone I'm getting comfortable leaving my comfort zone 
<laughs> Maybe a little too comfortable sometimes. I can remember the first time I went on, a, on a, an overseas missions trip to another country. Never been on a plane in my life. And going on this trip, you know, uh, we, in, we were in Spain, up in the hills, in the bush, in, in Barcelona there, all these, these Christian kids and all that. I mean, I, it was so uncomfortable. You know, I had never experienced any of that kind of thing in my life. So uncomfortable. I didn't even have to pray about that. You know, sometimes people say, well, what, did you pray before you, you went? I mean, didn't you decide whether or not it was God's will? I said, no. The, the, the pastor said, do you want to come on this overseas missions trip? You know, we're going to go and give the gospel to people who have never heard. Do you want to come? Do you need to pray about it? No. It's uncomfortable. I'm in. Right? So there are many things where you've got to, instead of avoiding the discomfort, you should run into it. Because God has something great that he may want to do. And if you avoid it because it's uncomfortable, you may miss a wonderful, wonderful adventure. I'm very thankful for that particular adventure because that's where I met my wife. <laughs> so uh, we were on the same team together and we ended up getting married. Okay, so that was a pretty, it went pretty well for me, you know, uh, being uncomfortable at least at that time. You know how uncomfortable it is to leave a nice, big, cushy church that's been around for a hundred years and to try and start one where there is none? You know how uncomfortable that is? I mean, we were in a church where all you have to do is turn the lights on and open the doors, and there's hundreds and hundreds of people who come, right? Say, well, we're leaving because God wants us to start something new in a place where there isn't anything. You know how uncomfortable that is? Well, wait a second. So there's this, there's this really nice thing you get in a big church. It's called a paycheck. It's a wonderful little thing. Comes on a piece of paper. It always says the same thing every time. Remarkable. The numbers are exactly the same every time. Like you can count on the numbers being the same. Right? There's security, there's comfort, there's all those things. But there comes a point, folks, where, where you feel like, man, there's just, we've reached the end. There needs to be something else. We need to be stretched more. We need to do something that God is prodding us to that's a little scary, a little uncomfortable, but we need to do it. And many, many times in the Christian life, if you just succumb to the comfort and just start relaxing, oh boy, that's when you're going to stop growing. Discomfort is not a bad thing. The ultimate example of discomfort is who? The Lord Jesus himself. If it is possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. This is a really uncomfortable cup I'm about to drink on this cross. If there's another way, but nevertheless, your will be done. The ultimate example of discomfort that leads to our very salvation. Barrier number two, living in carnality. It's an old word to be carnal, to be consumed with, you know, the, the, the flesh and the desires of the flesh, as the Bible words it, that opposes itself up against God. Uh, Paul says, forgetting what is behind, um, I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul, as we've, as we've learned since Easter, was a really bad sinner guy, like he was a bad, bad guy. 
So he was someone who had Christians executed. He was someone who had Christians thrown in prison. A modern-day equivalent, believe it or not, to the Apostle Paul would be essentially a religious terrorist. That's essentially what he was. So in the name of God, he was terrorizing the early church. This is what he would do, and he did it in the name of what he believed. He thought that Jesus was an imposter. He thought that this whole church was a, was a great affront to the Jewish religion, and in the name of God, he was going to squash it. The best equivalent you could find probably would be like a modern-day religious terrorist. And Paul says that he, he even talks in t- to Timothy that he's the chief of sinners, Because he was a persecutor of the church. This man had a lot to leave behind. I mean, he's there officiating the brutal stoning of Stephen. Uh, Even at the moment of his conversion, he's trying to get these letters to, to these synagogues, these Jewish synagogues in Damascus, to try and prove that these are Christians so he can capture them, have them thrown into prisons. Bad guy. Uh, We have to leave our sin if we want to follow Jesus. We have to to forget what is behind. And we have to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of us. It's the, the idea of when a person becomes a Christian, God declares that person clean and sanctified before him. But you've got to practice that. It's the idea of being positionally holy, but you practice what God has already done for you. This is the idea of sanctification and becoming more and more like Jesus. I get concerned when I see that there are Christians and they've lost the little, the little radio up in their spiritual brain. You know, the little radio goes tuk, 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 when, there's a, when they're, they're getting into a sin situation and a carnal situation. There should be a little meter that goes tuk, 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 avoid You need to avoid that thing. You need to avoid that discussion. You need to avoid that behavior that's going to hurt you. That's opposed to God. You need to watch out for that. But sometimes the Christians, the meter, it's it's not working anymore. It's dulled out. There's no more sensitivity to hold on a second. Jesus didn't save you so that you can continue to live the same way that you live. He wants transformation Uh, you you don't become a Christian so you can be comfortable. You become a Christian so that you'd be forgiven of your sin. And Paul had to leave a lot of this behind. And this is what he's talking about. I forget what is behind. And I press on toward that goal. Jesus has saved me and now I'm going to live it. Best example in the Old Testament, believe it or not, is Moses. Moses. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about how Moses makes the choice of rejecting the pleasures of sin for the sake of Christ. It says there, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded uh, disgrace for the sake of Christ. Moses. For the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. He didn't even know the name of Jesus, this man. Didn't even know, but again, like Abraham, something is coming. Someone is coming and I've got to say no to the pleasures of sin 
because something is coming. Someone is coming. He's born in a time of Hebrew slavery. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. Most of you probably know the story in pieces and parts. And his mother recognizes, right, there's something special about this child. And Pharaoh has gone on a campaign to to slaughter all of these these little babies because the Jewish people are outnumbering the Egyptians and he's getting scared. And so Moses' mother hides him for three months and then puts him in a basket, sends him out floating on the Nile River and kind of trusts God for the rest. And Moses ends up being picked up by Pharaoh's daughter in the Nile who brings him into her household as a little infant and nurses him and, uh, and gives him back to Pharaoh's uh, uh, daughter. Or sorry, the, um, the, the nursemaid there takes care of the baby and then hands the baby over to Pharaoh's daughter who raises uh, Moses uh, as her own son. So Moses grows up in the Egyptian household as an Egyptian for all intents and purposes. And so he's grown up and he sees uh, this fight happening where an Egyptian uh, is beating one of these Hebrew slaves. And Moses gets very angry when he sees this. And he looks to his left and he looks to his right. He doesn't see anyone there. So what does he do? He kills the Egyptian and he, he buries him in the sand to hide it. Uh, but he, but he, he, he ends up in a manner of speaking getting caught. The next day he sees two Hebrew uh, people fighting. Not an Egyptian fighting a Hebrew, but two Hebrews fighting. And, and he says, he tells them to stop. You're fighting your own people. And they say to him, well, who made you judge and ruler over us? Are you going to kill us too? Like you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feels ashamed and he runs off to Midian where God calls him in the famous burning bush experience. And Moses returns to Egypt as the Hebrew leader, commanding Pharaoh to let the, the children of Israel go. But why? Because he says to himself, I am not going to be identified as this Egyptian living in the pleasures of sin. That is not who I am. God has called me to lead these people out of bondage, and I am one of them. I am a Hebrew. I'm putting behind all of this stuff of Egypt and all of the pleasures that I could get in Egypt to do God's will. Anytime a person decides to be a follower of Jesus, there's stuff that you've got to change. You don't just say, well, you know, I prayed some prayer in a church and that makes me a Christian and that's it, that's all. And this is not the way that it works. Again, the disciple is a learner and you go through this process where you say, hold on, there's a little sin meter in my head now. How come when I go and I try and do the same thing that I used to do, I feel uncomfortable? Why is that? How come when I have this conversation with this person, it bothers me now? Why is that? That's because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, you see. And he's trying to prod you to, hey, you need to change this now, and you need to change this now, and you need to start living a different way, and that's how you grow. I used to think that the longer that people professed to be uh, uh, followers of Jesus, the more holy they got. I used to think that. And then I started watching people. You know what I observed? Time, it does not dictate how mature a person is in their Christianity. I've seen people who say, oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I got saved when I was five years old, you know. And now I've been serving the Lord for 55 years and all this stuff. And they're as carnal as ever. 
They're as sinful as ever. The stuff that comes out of their mouths is, is repulsive. And yet they're the ones who've been serving the Lord allegedly for so much time. By the way, a person can go to church all their lives, be involved in church, be involved in the community all their lives. And you should do that. Like for a person to be a Christian and not be involved in Christian community is hypocritical. It's a contradiction. But at the same time, there are people who are involved in Christian community and in church all their lives, but never, never have been transformed by Jesus. Never. They're involved. They teach Sunday school or in our case, Saturday school or whatever. They do all these things. They're involved in leadership position, blah, 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 blah. And never, ever, ever have a personal experience with Jesus. They've got the whole outside looked after but no change on the inside, no change, no transformation. And Jesus wants to not only save you, but he wants to clean you up. It doesn't matter how long a person has professed to serve God. Sometimes it makes absolutely no difference. Uh, Barrier number three, a lack of courage, a lack of courage, big barrier to growth. So Paul says, I press on toward the goal To win the prize. This is deliberate athletic language that he's using here. He's trying to draw a metaphor. And he does this in other places in his writings as well. Uh, When you look at at the natural world. You know and you look at sports. And he would be writing in the context of the the games there. And the Greco-Roman games. um, Reaching the goal. And, and winning the, the prize and the championship or finishing the marathon or whatever and reaching the top position. In that context, that always takes courage. Always takes courage. And we admire these athletes when we see them win and we see the things that they do. But sometimes there are things that are going on and there's a context Uh, that makes it even all the more dramatic and all the more kind of provocative uh, for us. A couple of examples come to mind. In 1936, the the African-American man, Jesse Owens, uh, won the gold in the 100-meter, the 200-meter, the 4-by-100 relay, and the long jump. Won gold medals all over the place. Amazing, amazing athlete. Ah, But he did it in Berlin in front of Adolf Hitler. This adds a whole layer to the story and the drama and the courage because, of course, Hitler wanted to prove that his so-called Aryan race was the master race and he was going to do it in front of the whole world in Germany. And here you have this African-American man who obliterates the competition and is a legend in the sport of track and field, and he does it in circumstances that would have taken great courage as he defied Hitler himself holding up those medals that he had taken from everybody else. Very, very powerful story about courage. Uh, Some of you would remember not too long ago in 2010 uh, when Joanie uh, Rochette, the, the Quebecer, a uh, figure skater from Quebec who was in the games in Vancouver in the Olympic Games and her mother died uh, suddenly of a heart attack and she found out about it and decided that she was going to compete anyway and took the bronze medal in one of the most, uh, I don't know, moving events in sports history. 
in the last like 50 years, you're not going to see anything like that. I would challenge you to even Google it and look it up and watch it. It is a very moving moment to see how she was able to do that and to, to have a personal best and take the bronze medal at the Olympics. Tremendous, tremendous courage. Now, an example of this from the scripture is uh, probably the best example of all is David. And when we think of David and we think of courage, of course, we think of the, the battle with the giant Goliath, you know. But even before that, even before that battle, which we'll get into in a moment, David, there's, a, there's an obscure part to his life that we don't often think of. But David did not wait for the kingdom to drop in his lap. And David starts moving right away, even before he faces Goliath. So 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 13, this is where David is anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Samuel uh, takes the horn of oil and he, he pours it on David in symbolic fashion in the presence of all of his brothers. And David is the youngest little guy there. And he says to David, uh, it says that that, from that day forward, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel leaves and he goes to this place, Ramah. But David, he starts moving. All of a sudden, he starts moving. He's He's the least of Jesse's eight sons. Uh, but he's the one that Samuel anoints as the next king. He's just a teenager. The Spirit of God comes upon him and he starts moving. And he ends up in King Saul's household, kind of by divine appointment. Uh, he's a musician and he's able to calm King Saul's, King Saul's ragged uh, nerves. And we see that David, right away, he's exposed to the whole area, the whole palace of leadership that Saul has there. And he starts to see these things. And then we see the background for the battle against the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verses 28 to 37. This is a guy who is nine and a half feet tall. Now, I want to show you how big that is, all right? I have a picture on the screen uh, from the sports world. Those of you who like baseball, like me, uh, would know that there's a story happening in the baseball world about a rather unique player, the taller guy there. His name is Aaron Judge. He is six foot seven, 282 pounds. And is shattering records by rookies in, in baseball. And he's standing next to normal sized men there. And that's how tall he is. Very, very intimidating uh, player. His last name is Judge. So when he comes up to hit, the people say, judgment is coming. Okay, it's quite amusing. If you lived in New York City, you know, you would be just so thrilled if you could even watch a game with this young guy, this rookie, Aaron Judge. The, the intimidating, very intimidating uh, athlete. When you talk about David, this little teenage boy in front of a nine and a half foot tall man. I mean, the description of this man is ridiculous. He's nine and a half feet tall. His armor weighs 125 pounds. His armor. That's probably what David weighed. And Goliath's armor weighs the same as David. The tip of Goliath's spear, the tip of his spear is 15 pounds. The tip of his spear. 
The man probably weighed between 400 and 500 pounds. He's nine and a half feet tall. He is a machine. And he is intimidating, bringing fear and terror into the entire army of Israel for a month and a half. He goes and he taunts them and intimidates them day after day after day after day. And you can read the story there. Jesse, uh, David's father, says to young David, he says, go and go get some, some Tim Hortons muffins and, uh, and so, uh, bring them to your brothers and go get some cheese and go bring it to the commander of the army. Go do us a favor, David. You're the youngest, you're the servant. This doesn't say Tim Hortons, but uh, you know that's my version. So David goes and he, he sees the, the mess that's happening there. And to him, this is, uh, he doesn't see it the way that the whole army of Israel sees. He doesn't see it the way Saul sees. He doesn't see the way Jesse sees it, his father. He looks at it, he sees this big mess. And so this, I would challenge you, is where he starts showing the courage. It's well before he fights Goliath. Um, he goes and he starts asking questions and he defies his oldest brother which in that culture, to defy the eldest brother would be a very, very uh, either stupid or very courageous thing to do. In his case, courageous. And he defies him. And he, say, Can't, he says, can't I even speak? You know, what, what's going on here? And uh, so the, the brother says to David, why have you come down here? What are you doing here, little boy? You know, with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? You're a, you're a shepherd. Where's your little sheep, oh, oh, youngest brother? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You only came to watch the battle. He's hearing this from his oldest brother. Wow, very, very insulting. But David continues. And he says, can't I even speak? Let no one lose heart because of this Philistine. Your servant will go. And fight him. Your servant means I will. I will go and fight him. This would have taken tremendous courage. He keeps on asking questions. He challenges the eldest brother. And he says, I will go and I will fight this giant. And I'm going to kill this giant. So, so he, they bring him to Saul, the king. And Saul says, you're a little boy. This is a killing machine that you are up against. He's, you're, you don't have any chance. And David says, no, I, I've, I've got this in my background. One time I killed a lion who was after my sheep. One time I killed a bear who was after my sheep. Any of you ever killed a lion or a bear? That's pretty impressive, you know. He says, I can take him. And the rest, of course, is, is history. Why? Because David moved because David did something when he sensed the prodding of the Spirit of God after he was anointed and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He ends up in Saul's household. He's moving. He's doing something. And this leads to an amazing victory. You say this has nothing to do with Jesus. Don't be so quick about that. The Bible says in the book of Acts, he is a man after God's own heart. This, this man, David, and he predicts the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus himself. Acts chapter 2, uh, the apostle Peter is preaching this message on the day of Pentecost. And what does he say? 
David said about him, the him is Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me from Psalm 16 because he is at my right hand. Um, I will not be shaken. I mean, can you picture David with a little sling in his hand? You know, I saw the Lord is before me. Someone is coming. Something is coming. I will not be afraid. I saw the Lord before me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one. This is where it starts talking about Jesus. See decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with, your, with joy in your presence. And Peter says, listen, brothers, I can tell you confidently that David's dead. The patriarch David, he died. He was buried. His tomb is here. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead. Acts chapter 2, verse 31. Seeing what? What was ahead? He spoke. David spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised his Jesus to life, and we were all witnesses. We are all witnesses, Peter says, of this fact. So even though David didn't know the name of Jesus, Something was coming. Someone is coming. I need to show courage in this moment. I need to follow the leading of the Spirit of God. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. Wonderful how these men, in the examples that they show, uh, decided that they were going to do what they did ultimately for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ. So a lack of courage... Uh, too much comfort, too much comfort and living in carnality. These are the barriers that we face. I'd like the musicians, if they would come and begin, uh, if you'd play on the keys softly, uh, Michelle, and we're going we're gonna to close in prayer before uh, the, the congregation sings. But I wonder if there are people in this room today and you say, wow, you know, you've got me thinking about it in reverse here. This is very different than what I thought. And I think that there may be people who are in this room and you've got the outside all looked after. You know, you're, you're, you're part of a church, you, you do all these things, whatever. You, 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 maybe you've even been baptized before. I don't know. But you know that all that stuff is on the outside and there's nothing that's going on in the inside. If Jesus were to step into this room in the, in the flesh, you would be afraid that he would say to you, I don't know you. I don't know you. These other people I know, but you I don't know. There's no connection. There's no fellowship with you. And you say, today is the day where I want to make it real between me and God. I, I want Jesus to be a real part of my life, not just all of this surface stuff that everybody sees. But I want Jesus to be the center of my life. And maybe there are others of you, and you say, you know, so comfortable. I recognize the comfort in my life I recognize the lack of courage that I have some of these things have just plopped up and you say oh man I need to I need to do this now and I need to do this now I just want to have a word of prayer with you before we sing if you could close your eyes so that we could have just a private moment and nothing magical about it just so that other people don't see 
And I wonder if there are those of you and you say, that's exactly where I am, Pastor. You've hit it right on the head today. If that's you, can you just raise your hand so that I can pray for you before we sing today? Anybody at all? And you say, oh, this is exactly what I need. Yes, thank you for your honesty, sir. You may put your hand down. Anybody else? Just in the privacy of this moment. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah. Anybody else? We have plenty of time. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you would you would pull people. You would make people uncomfortable. You would stretch them. Lord, in the in the private moments of their world, they would reach to Jesus and find Jesus as faithful and true and real and that they would be guided by a relationship with Jesus even as expressed in a church context but God there would be something real on the inside and they would know that they know that they know that Jesus Christ is the center of my life Lord bless people in this room today strengthen people lead people help people to make decisions that may be difficult help people to 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 be bold and fearless fill people with your spirit and with your power that people may do your will in Jesus name